From Bowling Green State University and the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society, this is BG Ideas. I'm going to show you this with a wonderful experiment. You're listening to the Big Ideas Podcast, a collaboration between the Institute for the Study of Culture and Society and the School of Media and Communication at Bowling Green State University. I'm Jolie Sheffer, Professor of English and American Culture Studies and the Director of ICS. As always, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of BGSU or its employees. Bowling Green State University and its campuses are situated in the Great Black Swamp and the Lower Great Lakes region. This land is the homeland of the Wyandot, Kickapoo, Miami, Potawatomi, Ottawa, and multiple other indigenous tribal nations present and past who were forcibly removed to and from the area. We recognize these historical and contemporary ties in our efforts toward decolonizing history, and we thank the indigenous individuals and communities who have been living and working on this land from time immemorial. Today is a special episode for BGSU's 2022 Homecoming Celebration. I have the pleasure of talking with three members of the 2022 class of the Academy of Distinguished Alumni. The ADA was created to recognize extraordinary accomplishments by alumni who have made significant contributions to their professional field and through their community involvement. Joining me in the studio are Clarence Albert Daniels, Jr., retired Colonel Brenda Hollis, and Dr. Anthony Rucci. Clarence earned his bachelor's degree and master's in education from BGSU, earned a law degree and worked at the Children's Defense Fund, and then served as chairman and CEO of CMS Hospitality, a food and beverage concessions company. He's also served his community by mentoring small businesses, nonprofit organizations, and disadvantaged youth. Brenda earned her bachelor's in liberal arts from BGSU and is now an international criminal prosecutor and human rights advocate who's worked on war crimes cases in Cambodia, Sierra Leone, and the former Yugoslavia. She's also assisted victims of international crimes in Colombia and the Democratic Republic of Congo to prepare submissions requesting investigations by the International Criminal Court at The Hague. Tony earned his bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees in industrial and organizational psychology from BGSU and had a distinguished career in business at Fortune 50 companies. He's also a professor emeritus at The Ohio State University. He currently serves as senior advisor to the U.S. Semi-Quincentennial Commission, established by Congress in 2016, charged with planning, design, and execution of the nationwide events which will commemorate the 250th anniversary of the nation in 2026. I want to start by congratulating all of you um, for being named to the class of the Academy of Distinguished Alumni, which is the highest honor bestowed by the university. I'd like each of you to sort of talk about how the idea of public service and the public good has been a through line through your career in its many different phases, because each of you has had really fascinating careers. Clarence, would you start us off? How has that been a continuing theme in your many different lives and careers? Well, well thank you. Um, in my case, at least, it comes from the period in which I matured here at, at Bowling Green. That was the period during the Vietnam War. There were student protests across the country. There were students murdered here in Ohio at Kent State and at Jackson State. I had friends who would go to Vietnam and not, not come home. And so I think I became very serious at a younger, younger age. And I, and I think a lot also was due to my parents and my upbringing. As I have mentioned, my parents were part of the 
black Southern migration from the South. They were from Arkansas. They moved to Ohio for better economic opportunities. And so there was in my home a desire for self-improvement. There was a desire. My, my father was one of these people who, when other members from their small town in Arkansas came, they all stayed with us before they got on their feet. He felt an obligation to help. I, I remember there were homeless people in the neighborhood I lived in, and my father would every morning fix food and leave it on our little back porch for people to eat. You know, it was just the way he was. And so I grew up in that type of environment. And then I matured in a very serious point in this country. And I was always a reader, and I always thought about things in a, in a kind of broader context. And so early on, I decided whatever I did, I wanted to be helpful, particularly to young people. And so initially, I wanted to be an educator. I, I thought being a teacher, those were the professionals I was exposed to. I was not exposed to lawyers. I was not exposed to doctors. I was exposed to teachers and ministers and undertakers, kind of the classic situation. And so early on, I was committed. And so whatever I've done in my career, even though the jobs often seem desperate and different, there is a through line. And the through line is you've been fortunate, Clarence. You should always give back. And so it's just part of what I've, I've tried to do. And unfortunately, I married someone who I met here at Bowling Green, my Falcon Flame, who had the same belief system. And so together, we've always tried to think of, of others and wh whatever we've done. Brenda, what about for you? How has, you know, is there a kind of through line and how did that develop for you as a kind of real priority in the work that you chose to do? I think in my case, it really revolved around my family. Uh, I'm of Southern lineage. And if I could say it this way, I guess we have a history of silent service, uh, military service primarily, but unquestioning service. And not really pretentious service. Uh, my stepfather went to Korea, never came back. And my mother uh, didn't uh, rant against the government. So I think I sort of grew up with that attitude. And then I came to Bowling Green and certainly that attitude was reinforced by expanding my knowledge in the humanities. Uh, and then the jobs that appealed to me were always uh, ones that were a type of public service. When I graduated from Bowling Green, I had two job offers. One was the Peace Corps, and the other was the CIA. Uh, and I went in the Peace Corps and learned that I would never be a linguist because uh, I went to French West Africa. And we had about four weeks of training at Dartmouth College in French, total immersion. I would dream in French, not knowing what I was dreaming. And I went to uh, Senegal. And we worked for the government, so we had uh, dinners, official dinners, and the food was very spicy, hot. And at that time, I just, my mouth would be burning. I had nothing to drink, and so I didn't want to be uh, rude. So I would say, in what I thought was good French, I'm full. Well, I said it literally, je suis plein, which finally someone told me meant I'm pregnant. <laughs> so, uh, but it was, uh, <laughs> so it was, uh, again, it was service in the Peace Corps in West Africa, dealing with the people in the community. Uh, and then from there, I went into the Air Force, which I also view as service. And then to law school and back into the Air Force. And then I was actually just loaned to the Yugoslav Tribunal at the very beginning of that court. Uh, the United States loaned about 22 
mostly State Department, Department of Justice, five of us from the Department of Defense with prosecution backgrounds, investigation backgrounds. So my boss, the Judge Advocate General of the Air Force, called me up and said, Brenda, you're going to The Hague. And I saluted smartly and went to The Hague. So, uh, but again, I, uh, I think this, this idea of serving, serving this country always, everything I've done I think has served this country, but serving the global community of which we are a part. What about for you, Tony? What has been kind of the connecting thread in your various many different lives? Sure. Thanks for the invitation to be here today, by the way. Um, I grew up in Youngstown, Ohio. My dad was an Italian immigrant and a steel worker his entire career in the steel mills in Youngstown, Ohio. And um, what I grew up recognizing really surprisingly from a very early age is the dignity of people is just absolutely paramount in a community, in a society, right? And where people feel like their dignity is respected, good things happen. It becomes a virtuous circle, right? And the idea of giving back, if you think about most nonprofits and their missions and, you know, public university for the public good, if you boil all that down, most nonprofit NGO organizations really ultimately are about building up the self-esteem of people in a society. And and that benefits everybody, not just those individuals who uh, benefit from it. So that recognition, I think, for me came very early. And, you know, in spite of coming from, you know, a modest, you know, economic background, I've always felt very fortunate in my life. And and, uh, again, when you feel like you have been blessed in any way at all, I I think you have a moral obligation to give back. So that's been the motivation. As we've, as you've touched on already a bit, all of you had broad liberal arts educations at BGSU, but you've led into such various careers. I mean, each of you has had many stages of your careers, but then across the board, um, you've all done very different things. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about the pathway from that undergraduate major, like the 18-year-old you, and sort of how here, during your time here, that sort of helped you set the stage for some of the choices you would make later. Brenda, will you kick us off? Sure. If we're talking about planning your future, I'm not the one to speak to because I have fallen into most of what I have done. But when I came here, I had such an appetite to learn so many different things. I would come back before the classes started and buy books for courses I couldn't take because I already had too many hours, just because I was interested in it. So it was feeding a hungry mind uh, in many, many different ways. Uh, But again, all of the uh, humanities I found very, very interesting. And I also came to realize that in some ways there are artificial compartmentalizations because, for example, if you look at international crimes, you realize how interconnected they are to the economic situations in the countries, to the corruption in the government, and the seeking out of power and entitlement. It's all one. So economic background helps you to understand that. The humanities help you to understand that. Military history helps you to understand all of that. So I began to see that really it's all interconnected. And I really applaud today's efforts to basically move back to a renaissance model of education where you do have a very broad base. What about for you, Tony? So I come from a huge Italian family, western Pennsylvania, northeastern Ohio. 
and uh, all of my uncles dropped out of high school in the late 1950s to go to work in the steel mills and the automobile plants in that part of the country. And, and we would have these huge family picnics, right, every August in a park somewhere in western Pennsylvania. And <clears throat> my uncles would get a game of penny-ante poker going at 5.30 in the afternoon. And um, they'd play poker for two and a half hours. And all they did while they were playing poker was complain. And, and I would sit there, you know, listening. And what do you suppose they complained about? Their job, their boss the way their company treated them or didn't treat them, you know? And that left a real impression on me at 12, 13, 14 years old because I just found myself saying, don't their companies, don't their bosses realize that if they treated my uncles better, they'd be more motivated, they'd be more committed, they'd be more productive. I mean, this is a, you know, a win-win for everybody. So once I came to Bowling Green and uh, got my degree, and I have had jobs that I didn't even know existed when I was 18 years old. And, and what I came to realize very quickly is that for-profit corporations can play a very powerful social influence in the world if the leadership of those organizations is committed to that. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's doing good while doing well. I mean, you know, it's, it's this idea that Profit and being a responsible organization are not contradictions, right? In fact, they really are synergistic. And so my, you know, eventual move into corporate America was really driven by this belief that corporations can play a much more vital role in the general welfare of people around the world. And Clarence, you've created businesses of your own. So how, for you, were there seeds of that that were planted as an 18-year-old at BGSU? And how did you kind of develop your direction? There were certainly seeds planted at Bowling Green, and they weren't planted from the standpoint of starting a business. I was fortunate to get leadership opportunities very, very early and very often. And I found myself, I didn't necessarily see myself as a leader. And what I came to realize is that other people did. And initially, I couldn't figure out why people wanted me to, to, to lead. And, and then, you know, I reflect upon my, my grandmother who lived with us and my dad. And to this day, I can't figure out. They grew up very, very poor in the South. My father was born when my grandmother was 15. They were together until the day of his death. They saw each other every day. But they had a special chemistry between them. They both loved to read. They both loved adventure. My grandmother has traveled all over this country. She signed up with a gospel group. She didn't sing, just to travel with them. They had a bus. They were both just very adventuresome, and they, they saw the world very differently. They didn't see the world through the circumstances that they were forced with. They saw the world differently. So I came from a family where there was, I'll say, there was vision. And so maybe some of that rubbed off on me and maybe that's why people wanted me to leave. But I think part of it was I also always liked to work. I always liked to understand things. And I think I would be in these situations where I just would have read the homework. And so when it was time to pick a leader, and I had a question about the homework, you know, 
give it to Clarence. But, you know, in all seriousness, literally I've always gotten leadership opportunities. And through those leadership opportunities, I grew and I learned. You know, I can remember being fearful when I was put in these leadership opportunities. How will I sound? Will people follow me? Can I deliver? And, you know, you grow out of that. But Bowling Green gave me a lot of opportunities to to lead. There was a student town council because there was tension between the townspeople and the university. We need someone. Hey, send Clarence. So, you know, I, I got that opportunity. My fraternity provided leadership opportunities. I, was a lead, I worked in dining services. I got promoted to leadership in the dining services. I also had two interesting roommates. I had uh, a roommate who was a philosophy major who, till he passed, was one of my best friends in life. He was very different. I had never met a guy uh, who thought like he did. He was a jazz aficionado. To this day, I love jazz, and I, he introduced me to jazz. My other roommate was a very disciplined business major, and so they were totally different, but we all loved each other. He's still one of my best friends in life. And so I've always loved ideas. I've always loved to be challenged. I've always liked to be around people who were different than I am, who thought differently. And, you know, I think I've been just fortunate. I think you know, my curiosity, my love of people, the fact that I particularly like to try to be around young people, and, and, and my dad was that way too. So I know I, this is not original, I'm, I'm a lot like my dad was. And you know, it's just carried me. I've never, I've never feared not having a job. Uh, I've always had confidence in my ability to find whatever is next for me. I've always had a belief that what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours, and so mine is going to come at some point. And so, you know, I just have been very fortunate. As Tony mentioned, you know, with respect to business and taking care of your people and treating people a certain way, I won't say it came natural, but I came out of an environment where you looked out for others. You know, that was part of your, it was part of your obligation, right? And so when we started our businesses, fortunately, I also worked for Bill Marriott, who had the same belief system, take care of your people, they'll take care of your customers. And so it's just been, in many ways, a labor of love for me. It's been um, part of, I'll say, part of my DNA to want to treat people a certain way and to feel an obligation to give back. And I'll say a lot of that started at, at, at Bowling Green. We're going to take a quick break. Thanks for listening to the Big Ideas Podcast. If you are passionate about big ideas, consider sponsoring this program. To have your name or organization mentioned here, please contact us at ics at bgsu.edu. Welcome back to the Big Ideas Podcast. Today I'm speaking with the 2022 Class of the Academy of Distinguished Alumni. With me are Clarence Albert Daniels, Jr., retired Colonel Brenda Hollis, and Dr. Anthony Rucci. One of the things that we care a lot about at ICS is how we use the skills that develop in your undergrad years and in education of critical thinking, writing, research, um, sort of those core you know, values and skills that we think of as part of a broad liberal arts education. I'm interested in how you have taken some of those skills and values 
from your early education and from your families and translated those into very different work experiences. So Brenda, you are working with war crimes and things. What are some of the ways in which the practices of doing research, of crafting your writing, of critical thinking play into the kind of work you're doing now? Well, it's absolutely indispensable to that work. We basically have to gather information, uh, organize that information into the component parts of potential crimes and forms of liability, and then assess that information. Is it worthy of belief? Would a judge actually accept that? So it's all built around uh, being very organized. And today, with all of the information available to us, we're very good at collecting it. We're getting better at organizing it in meaningful ways that we can retrieve as we need to. So that's the big challenge, I think, is how do we, what kind of IT systems do we use that uh, we can set up in a framework that we need? And that varies depending on the job that you do. Uh, but I think here at Bowling Green, the values I took from here and I brought here was openness to other perspectives because I was fortunate to be part of the honors program. And so you had small classes and people were able to share their ideas, their perspectives, their criticisms. And you have to listen critically in the sense that you're open to it and you're evaluating it. And that is a critical skill uh, in criminal justice as well. So that was very important, to be open to things, but also to research topics. Don't speak until you know what you're talking about, basically. Don't just talk the talk, be able to walk the walk. And I learned that here as well. And another thing that I learned that was critical, I think, as a prosecutor is uh, here I was able to develop in sports as well. The little town I came from, girls couldn't play sports. So for the first time here, I played field hockey. I'd never heard of the game. I played it. I played basketball. I played softball. And the thing that our coaches insisted upon was fair play and sportsmanship. And if you didn't display that, it didn't matter how important you might be or the game might be, they pulled you out. And so it reinforced what my mother had always taught me, and that is the, the importance of fairness, respect, and uh, appreciating the dignity of other people. So all of that kind of came together here and then carried me forward in all of the positions I've had since. Tony, you have been on both sides of the classroom, right? You were a student, yeah. you were working in business, and then served as a president and administrator at Ohio State. How has research and some of these skills kind of played into those different roles for you? So two really significant ways. Number one is results orientation, and number two is communication. Irrespective of what the topic or content or job or career is, those two things are indispensable. And, and what you learn, certainly when you come to university for the first time, right, is uh, results orientation is imperative, right? If you don't get something done and you don't get it done by a certain time in, uh, at an acceptable level of quality, there are consequences, right? And that is really important to figure out. And, and you figure that out, but, but then something even more magical happens, and that is you start to find out that finishing something at a quality level is, is a real kick. I mean, you, you, just, you know, when you finish something, one of the best jobs I ever had was doing tile and terrazzo work to help put myself through college. And what was so cool about tile and terrazzo work was you 
entered a building uh, in the morning at 5 a.m., 500 square foot area, and you started laying ceramic tile. And at five in the afternoon, you turned around and you looked behind you, and there's 500 feet of beautifully laid tile. The joints are even and uniform. And at that moment, you get to say what? I did that. I did that. That's one of the greatest feelings in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Secondly, communication. You can be the most brilliant human being on the planet. If you cannot clearly communicate your goals, if you're in a leadership position, especially uh, what you expect from people, you're not going to be successful. And uh, the communication part obviously goes both ways in terms of written communications, conciseness, as well as verbal communications. So those two things you learn at university, even though there's not a course, right, on results orientation or communication. What about for you, Clarence? Because you've you've had different roles, right, both as a business leader, but also in creating non-for-profits, mentorship programs, things like that. Is it a similar approach to each of those in terms of identifying the problem, researching it? How do you think about the relationship there? I think I'm going to come at this uh, from a little different direction. And I'll relate it to my experience here at Bowling Green. I was an education major. And the thing I remember, one of the things I remember most are the methods courses. Bowling Green taught me the how-to. And no matter what I've done, it's been very important to me to have structure and to know how to do something. I've found so often over the years that people, and a lot of smart people, they kind of jump to a result, but it's almost like tackling and blocking a football. They want to throw the fancy pass without blocking and tackling, right? And so Bowling Green taught me to block and tackle. What, is, what, is, what are the methods to do this? If you're going to teach a class, what's the lesson plan? What is the structure? How do you prepare for the class? And so preparation has always been critical to me, no matter what I do, to be prepared because there is a method to what you're doing. And so that to me always, my, my wife and I, we talk, she was an education major. We both thank Bowling Green, we're both happy that we understand the method to anything, no matter what it is. What is what is the structure? What's the method? So I would say that part of the value of my Bowling Green education is learning the methods. And it doesn't matter whether it's education, whether it's the law, it doesn't matter what it is, the preparation, but it's the methods. There is There are people who have spent lots of time thinking about, and maybe you can perfect on the method. Maybe there is a, a way you change it, however, but there is a method. There is a structure to things, right? So I, uh, I attribute that to my Bowling Green education. The other thing that I think for me at Bowling Green was I came from a city. I came from Cleveland, right, big city. But my early experiences at Bowling Green were with people who had come from smaller communities in Ohio. And I was not initially exposed to people from the smaller communities of Ohio. And what I learned early on was if I was going to be effective in accomplishing something and on my team or in my my initial dorm room and dormitory or whatever it was for people who came from different backgrounds, I could take one or two approaches. I could hope that they understood me or I could figure out how to understand them and have a better idea of where they're coming from to accomplish what I needed to accomplish. So I would say that the Bowling Green environment 
and it wasn't something I was playing because I didn't think a lot about coming to Bowling Green before I came here. And so I didn't think about where the students came from. And I didn't think about their backgrounds. And I didn't think about how many had never seen a black person before or lived, that's a bigger issue, lived in a dormitory in a small environment, right? And so I could, I could approach that a lot of different ways. But I ended up approaching it from the standpoint of let me take a moment to understand where they're coming from. And uh, in fact, that, that has informed my entire career, no matter what I do. You know, whether, whether I'm dealing with a finance person or whether I'm dealing with a marketing person or whether I'm dealing with a kid from, you know, uh, my first goal is to try to understand where they're coming from and what their background is and what motivates them. Because it makes my job, if I'm going to be the leader and I'm going to move the process, it makes it a lot more effective if I can genuinely, genuinely show empathy for them and try to figure out where they're coming from, it's much easier to build a team, it's much easier to get people focused on a similar goal. And I, and I would say a lot of that came from my experience here at Bowling Green. That's actually a beautiful segue to one of my other questions, which is one of the things that we really talk a lot about at ICS, is trying to figure out how do you create really meaningful and mutually beneficial collaborations, partnerships, rather than sort of it being one side feeling instrumentalized or patronized in some way. So, Anthony, you have had you know many different roles where this relates to, but I'm thinking specifically of the Bright New Leaders for Ohio Schools Project and the Semi-Sesquicentennial. Using whatever examples you want, could you talk about how you have approached creating collaborations that really are mutually beneficial and that speak to what Clarence is talking about, of really trying to reach for understanding as opposed to saying, here are your marching orders, like, okay, figure it out. So collaboration is actually the method. Commitment is the goal. And in my experience, there is nothing that drive successful organizations more than people who are committed to the mission of that organization. And the way you get that is by allowing people to be involved, by allowing them to influence, giving people autonomy, giving people decision-making authority. (laughs) People are going to make mistakes, right? When you give them autonomy, when you give them decision-making authority, that's how people get better, right? And when you allow people autonomy and decision-making authority, coupled with accountability, you know, ultimately you have to deliver something of value. But when you give people authority and autonomy and a voice, what you're really doing is building their commitment to the mission. And, and ultimately, I believe, a committed individual. I, I, you know, people have asked me over the years about loyalty, you know, people who work for a company for a year or two, and then they quit and go someplace else. And I I have actually a very different view of that. If you give me a person who is talented, capable, and committed for two years, I will take that person every time over a person who's half-hearted and stays for 25 years and collects a pension. Because I think ultimately, I'm just much better off with that person who was highly committed to the mission. Well, you're also talking about, I presume, good leadership, being able to communicate what you're working towards and bringing people along who share that priority. And letting them have a voice in what the goals are. Absolutely. Yeah. Brenda, a lot of the work that you're doing 
with the international court, you're working with lots of different people from around the world. How do you approach and think about the nature of partnership and collaboration? Because sometimes you have language differences. You've got kind of the you know, different communities coming together. You've got the bureaucracy of law and justice and then kind of um, healing and trauma within the communities. How do you negotiate your role within that? Well, in terms of building the legal teams, uh, we've always, I've always worked with integrated teams. So investigators, analysts, uh, prosecutors, support personnel. And to go back to one of Tony's points, I think I've been lucky because when you work in that arena, 99% of the time you're working with people who are already very committed because you are uh, personally becoming familiar with people who have been victimized in ways we simply cannot imagine. So with the team, you already have a commitment. And then basically you go back to the three C's that they teach you in the military that are three C's that are universal, and that is communicate, coordinate, and cooperate. And also that you praise in public and you always praise people for a job well done and you critique in private so that we can always uh, develop our skills better. We can fix our shortcomings. And one of the approaches I've had with every team I've had is that at the very beginning, we have one-on-one discussions, not only to clearly state what I expect, but to ask them what they expect of me and to make it clear that if I'm not living up to expectations, they should tell me that because we can all approve. And then periodically we have those discussions uh, after that. Uh, But it's a lot of hard work and you do have to bring people along and you do that by respecting them respecting their dignity, respecting their skill levels, and helping them to elevate the areas where they need uh, elevation in those, in those levels. And uh, again, it's a lot of hours. It's a lot of time. And when I'm a, new on a team, I always tell my team, you know, Fridays are great. There are only two more work days till Monday. <laughs> and they laugh, as you all did, until they realize I really mean it sometimes. So, but they do that. They do that. So I think it's being open to other perspectives because that builds a better product, being respectful of their backgrounds, their skills, their particular uh, mindset, and bringing all that together to achieve very important goals that you clearly state and ask for their input on the goals as well. So it's a very collaborative effort, as, as Tony has said. Clarence, what does collaboration mean for you, and what does a good version of that look like, and what are some of the elements of it? I think I've always tried to find uh, a way to get people to buy into big ideas, to not see work as just the combination of activities that lead to a goal, but rather we're part of something bigger. So the people come inspired. My, 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 my goal, and, and listen, I might not be the person to inspire them, but I can bring in speakers. I can bring in people who can maybe inspire them. I've always tried to get people to, to see that they're a part of something bigger than simply the food that we're serving at an airport, that we're part of a global transportation system. We're part of a community that needs us. I, you know, I've always tried to, to, to inspire, and I've always believed in celebrations. Any, any, any reason to celebrate, birthday celebration, someone got married, someone just had a kid, to make the workplace and I wanted you to look forward to seeing your colleagues, to being a colleague. So collaboration for me has been to try to bring people together 
in an environment where they feel like they're, what they're doing is bigger than maybe what they're actually performing on a day-to-day basis because it's tied to something, to something bigger, to try to make it an inspirational environment. You know, I can think of so many times where we got things done in our company that just seemed almost impossible to do because we would attract outsiders who may not even be a part of our company to feel almost obligated to help us do it because they saw what we were doing and they saw the energy of our people and the excitement of our people and it generates excitement in in others. And so um, inspiration, getting people to buy into a vision, something bigger than what we actually were and to get excited about it. As a final question, I'd like for each of you to think about what advice would you give to a current Bowling Green student who's maybe close to graduation and thinking about what their next move would be um, and how to develop a really meaningful life and career post-graduation. What did, what's one piece of advice that you would want to send them off with? Clarence, I'll have you go first. My advice would be to, to connect yourself to as many people as possible who are going in the direction you think you want to go. And to, to study them, to, to try to figure out what they're doing that might be different. I can remember when I was starting out, and I don't know where I got this idea from. I created an imaginary board of directors in my head. And they didn't know who they were. But I had people who either I read about or I met who I admired in different areas. And so as an example, I had, a, I had a finance person on my board and it was someone who was earning the type of money that I thought I wanted to earn in the future. That person was on my board. I had a family person. I, had, I remember the guy, he's deceased now, was a, a guy, Catholic guy with a big family, lots of kids. And I just loved the way he interacted with his wife and kids. I put him on the board. And so I created this kind of imaginary situation where I could go to, if I had challenges, I could go to my imaginary board in my head and I could try to think about how would they handle it, right? The point is, you're, you're well-equipped when you graduate from Bowling Green because you can think. And you're well-equipped because you can talk to other people and you can, you can reach out to people. I, I, I used to write people. I would read about people in the news and I'd write them a letter and introduce myself. And it's, you have a few minutes. No one responded. I mean, literally, I don't think I ever got a response. But that wasn't the issue. The issue was that I engaged in a process where I was identifying people who were being successful in areas that I wanted to be, be successful in. So I would just say, don't, don't undersell yourself. You, you've got what you need. You simply need to, to believe in yourself. And you need to, to network. And the network term is overused. And I don't mean it in a, in a classic network. You need to identify people. You don't have to know them. You can read about them. You need to identify people who are already doing what you're doing. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You'll get your chance to be creative. But to start out, find people who are already doing what you're doing and go for it. And, and don't surround yourself with what I call the dream killers. You know. People who haven't done what you're trying to do, and you're talking, they, they, they can't help you. You know, they're, they're going to be naysayers because your ideas are going to seem strange to them. But believe in yourself. Identify people who can help you along the way. And, and you'll be surprised. There are so many people who want to help if you ask. 
Well, that speaks to, I think it was last night you were talking about kind of build a team around you that support you Always. and share your vision. Always. Always. It's, it's, it's very important to put yourself in as positive an environment as possible, right? And so I, I absolutely believe it from your, 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 your partner, your spouse or partner to the people you hang out with. Try to put yourself in the most inspirational environment you can, because life's tough enough. You know, it's not. <laughs> you know, I've had a great career, I've had a lot of fun, but we're not here today to talk about all the things I could tell you about that didn't go well, right? But those are—that's life. Those are things you learn to overcome. You grow from those things. You learn from those things. But it is important to put yourself in as positive environment. And, and thing I'll say, listen, may not be as popular today to say. I think your your life should have a spiritual aspect to it as well. I don't I don't I don't I know in my case, you know, certainly Bowling Green helped, certainly my parents helped, but I also believe that there is a, a, a kind of a spiritual unseen aspect to life. You know, I know we're at a university here, but I would say don't don't sleep on the development of your spiritual life as well. If you're starting out, you know, equip yourself, get ready to go to war, get ready to go to battle your spiritual side, your network of friends, and just be positive and, and, and get as much, you know, we have the internet now. The information is out there. There, there is not, there's not an excuse in the world to walk into anything unprepared. It's as simple as the internet, right? So get yourself prepared, believe in yourself, talk to as many people as you can, and, um, and go for it. Brenda, what advice would you want to give to a young person at the, you know, on that cusp between leaving the sort of comfort and structure of, of college and going off into the wide world to start their, their career? You know, some people, I think, even when they come to college and when they leave, have a very clear idea of what they think they want their life to be. Others have different possibilities, and then people like me have no idea. Um, and so what I would suggest is that these students bear in mind that Life is what happens when you're planning for it. Uh, and so to the extent their circumstances allow it, take advantage of all the opportunities that present themselves that are of any interest to you at all. Because you may find that what really excites you and is the passion of your life is something totally different than the path you thought you would take. Uh, and if you follow that path, you can always go to another path if you're interests change, but I think you, you will find that path may be winding, may be difficult, but it will be very exciting and very fulfilling, and at the end of it, when you look back on your life, I think you will look back in a very positive way. And for you, Tony? The advice I'd give to a 22-year-old today is um, as you embark on your career, think about what you would like your legacy to be 50 years from now. And, and that may seem like a fool's errand at 22 years old, but I have um, taught a course called Your Leadership Legacy at Ohio State to thousands of 22-year-olds, 25-year-old MBA students. And at the end of the semester, they have to stand up and make a seven-minute presentation to their peer group. In 20 words or less, what do I want people to say about me when I retire from my professional career? And what is so moving about those thousands of presentations is nobody talks about professional accomplishments. 
They talk about the spiritual aspects of life. They talk about what social or moral good would be lost in the world if they weren't around. Uh, it's really quite moving. So a 22-year-old, if you give them a framework to think about it, right, can really talk about, yeah, this is my purpose in life, right? Now, what I do professionally and from a career standpoint certainly has to be consistent with that. But ultimately, this is what I want people to say about me. It's, it's a pretty powerful North Star, I think, for a 22-year-old. Well, all of you have really talked about kind of the value and the importance of thinking beyond yourself and the immediate moment, right, and tapping into something larger, whether that's community, spirituality, a sense of purpose, a sense of community. And I think those are, you know, wise words to be thinking about that, like, you don't have to know what that exact next step is to have that compass, right, set to true north to lead you there. Anything anyone wants to add before we sign off that we haven't touched on? Advice or formative experience or anything else? Well, the one other piece of advice I give uh, new college graduates is get involved in a nonprofit in your community from the instant that you leave here. And you'd be amazed. The CEOs of nonprofits, they would kill to have young people come to them and say, hey, how can I help? Can I be on your board? Can I do a task? Can I be on a task force? They would love for you to do it. Take the initiative, right? Figure out a couple of nonprofits wherever you're going to land geographically that, that really motivate you and, and go and invite yourself, put yourself on the agenda of that CEO and say, how can I help? I'd really like to get involved. I'd say um, don't take a job just for the money. If you want to be, in my opinion, genuinely happy, Try to find out and identify what your unique skills and abilities are and see if you can align that with uh, whatever your professional goals are going to be. Having said that, you may have to take the money to pay your rent. I'm not unrealistic. But at some point, your happiness is going to come from finding that professional goal that fits your unique gifts and skills. All of us have unique uh, gifts and skills. And when you can get those in alignment, when your career or whatever you're doing professionally is in alignment with your beliefs and values and what you value, that's when you're going to have fun to me because that's when work's not work. That's when you're simply in that zone. You're getting up every day to do the thing you love. I mean, so many artists have it, right? You think We think they do. They may. But I think all of us can have it. I think there's a level in which, in, in my career, you know, I would say in the last 30 years I haven't worked because I just simply loved so much what I was, what I was doing. Brenda, you do work that a lot of that is emotionally difficult to hear, right? How do you think about going into work? Like, How do you find satisfaction and meaning when the work, you know it's important, but it is also difficult? I think human beings who have been wronged want some measure of accountability for that. And it can be in, not in the criminal justice field. It could be in truth and reconciliation commissions. Um, but they want acknowledgement of the victimization, and they want some measure of accountability. And so we are bringing some measure of that, not perfect justice, but some measure of that. And that's very motivating. 
And the other thing is that you speak with these people who have lost limbs. They've lost an entire family. They've been subjected to sexual abuse for years. They've lost all control over what happens in their lives. And yet they're here. And they come forward to tell their story. And the resilience of the human spirit and the way they've had the strength to move forward, they can laugh, they can find joy in life. They never forget what happened to them, but they do find a measure of self-healing by forgiving, not excusing, not saying it's all right, but forgiving. And so when you're dealing with people like that and a situation that impacts an entire country, that is the kind of motivation that you bring into the office every day. And you work with people who are so committed and very decent, just caring human beings, and that also is a motivation. So you have to step outside yourself, as both our gentlemen have said today, and you have to look at the broader picture and understand that if people can survive what they've survived, I have a duty to bring some measure of justice to them in any way that I can. Thank you so much for joining me today, Clarence, Brenda, and Tony. It was a pleasure talking with you. To learn more about the Academy of Distinguished Alumni, visit bgsu.edu forward slash alumni. Listeners can keep up with ICS by following us on Twitter and Instagram at ICSBGSU or by looking at our Facebook page. You can listen to Big Ideas wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Please subscribe and rate us on your preferred platform. It really does help. For more information or to propose a guest for a future episode, visit bgsu.edu forward slash bgideas. Sound engineering for this episode was provided by Marco Mendoza. Audio editing by Deanna McKeegan and Marco Mendoza. Research assistance was by Joanna Simpson.